In a world where fans have grown tired of the same old cookie-cutter Comic-Con formats, only one con defies the odds. Only one Comic-Con stands what fans really want. Only one Comic-Con dares calls itself terrific. That's right, this August 17th through the 19th at the all-new giant-sized Mohegan Sun Expo Center in Uncasville, Connecticut, comes Terrific Con! Connecticut's Terrific Comic Con is back with New England's largest gathering of comic book artists and writers. Plus, Terrific Con delivers actors from your favorite TV shows and movies. And there's an all-new expanded gaming section as we give you tabletop gaming, video games, and so much more. Plus, don't forget, all kids 10 and under get in free at Terrific Con and can be part of the all-new All Yeah Kids Comic Con. Join us for three full days of Comic-Con action only in Connecticut at TerrificCon. For more information, go to our website, www.terrificcon.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, really excited about today's show. Jerry Ordway joins us. Man, I've been wanting Jerry Ordway on the show for years and have, you know, asked him before via Twitter, and I don't know if the message has ever got to him or not, but finally, we hook up. Uh, He couldn't have been nicer, and also, he's going to be at Terrificon in August at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, so that's going to be great, and I'm going to get to see him face-to-face, and uh, I'm really trying hard to get a bunch of uh, the creators that will be at Terrificon to be on Word Balloon uh, because, you know, you've heard the commercials. I'm going to be part of Terrificon. I'm not doing San Diego this year. Instead, I'm going to Connecticut and Mohegan Sun. I wanted to go to a part of the country I haven't been to yet. So uh, really excited to be there. Great lineup of guests. All you have to do is go to the website to see. Um, and uh, Jerry is among those guests. So it was my opportunity to talk to him about Superman, some of the characters he created, certainly All-Star Squadron and Infinity, uh, a little bit of Captain Marvel. Not enough uh, time to uh, you know waste with uh, Jerry Ordway to talk about all the great things that he did. But I think we got a good uh, smattering of uh, some of his uh, great work. And it's an excuse to have him back. I don't know if I'll be doing uh, his panel or not, but I'm certainly willing to. But if not, I mean, we've already pretty much said, all right, we'll do this again. Couldn't have been nicer. Great conversation. Happy to share it with you on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support via Patreon. You know Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you want to help out the cause and uh, help me uh, put this on, uh, it's a big help. Because every now and then, you know, equipment will fail. Uh, trying to get to uh, various conventions sometimes, and uh, you know this uh, helps. So thank you for subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon, League of Word Balloon listeners. A bunch of new people came on at the end of June, and that's a big help. And uh, you know, hopefully, uh, what you hear is uh, what you like. And if you have a dollar or two to support, is Word Balloon worth the price of a comic book each month? I try to put out the best content I can, and I know listening to Word Balloon must exceed. Uh, the amount of time it takes to read your average comic book. So, uh, you know, again, it's not necessary, but if you can help the cause, it's greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash wordballoon or just click on the ad on the front page of wordballoon.com and it will take you to my Patreon page. But thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades. At instocktrades.com, there is a lot of Jerry Ordway material that is waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. There are things like uh, you can get the first volume of Infinity, Inc., the Generation Saga, which is a great story that pits the Justice Society against their children. Really good stuff. Roy and Dan Thomas doing the writing. Uh, Jerry Ordway, Mike Macklin, 
Tony DeZuniga, Don Newton, Todd McFarlane among the artists. It's 45% off for this. It's uh, $21.99. You can also get Modern Masters Volume 13, Tomorrow's Look at Jerry Ordway's Wonderful Art and Career. It's a great uh, retrospective of uh, Jerry's work, and it's only 40% off, $8.97. You can also get Superman the Man of Steel Volume 7, which features... John Byrne and Jerry Ordway writing and John Byrne and Jerry Ordway art, among others. It collects Superman 13 through 15, Action Comics 596 through 597, and The Adventures of Superman 436 through 438. $45 off, $10.99. There's also more great Jerry Ordway art. Uh, you can get his uh, run with um, Dan Jurgens on Thor. Uh, they did great stuff at Marvel when they were working together. Volume 4 is uh, 42% off, $17.39. There's also, I love this, uh, uh, you know, sequel to Top 10 that Paul DiFilippo uh, wrote. Jerry did the art. Um, This was a very early word balloon when I talked to Paul about this book. And I got to remember to uh, bring it up to Jerry to talk to him about it next time. It's a great addition to Alan Moore's uh, Top 10 world. Just as good as the Xander Cannon uh, stuff that he did with uh, Gene Ha. But this is, um, how much is this off? 50% off, $7.49. Some of the great books available to you at InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Jerry Ordway, now on Word Balloon. Really excited to welcome Jerry Ordway to Word Balloon. I'm a longtime fan, sir, and uh, thank you for talking today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Let's get started with the origin story because uh, you, you got a fun you got a fun origin story, man. Um, I know, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going <laughs> to say, I, as I understand it, um, your your big break at DC, and I know that there's a little backstory leading up to that, but uh, came at a uh, Chicago comic convention. Yes, it did. Um, I had gone. Actually, my friend Mike Macklin and I had driven to New York like a couple years earlier and gone through the. Uh, interview process up at D.C. right before the D.C. implosion. And I came back to Milwaukee very depressed, and I thought, well, if comics don't want me, I won't. I don't want them. So I went to, into commercial art and worked my way up at this art studio and eventually wound up drawing, like, some coloring books and activity books for D.C. characters and Marvel characters. But apparently the D.C. characters were actually more important than to me getting work at uh, at a talent search at the 1980 Chicago Comic Con. Um, it, I still had to wait a whole day. It was one of those uh, wonderful, at the, I don't know if the Pick Congress Hotel still exists. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It was a beautiful old building, but it had a wall full of glass windows in the upper level that they used for these conference rooms, and the sun was just coming in. It was like, you know, July 4th. These, these rooms were kind of like uh, little microwaves. And I sat in a hallway with probably 50 Doctor Who costume contestants as well. So there was, you know, we were just a whole line in this hallway, and the Doctor Who thing was obviously separate, but it was the days of Doctor Who with the big heavy scarf and the hat and the coat. Tom Baker, so absolutely. Only, yeah, yeah. You could you could only imagine what the uh, the smell of humanity was like <laughs> <laughs> on top of the normal you know, comic convention. Absolutely, man. Right. So that was a whole day of waiting, and I kept seeing Joe Orlando. You know, he was he was uh, the guy who was doing the talent search, 
Wow. He kept, you know, getting interrupted by Paul Levitz, who I knew had just, you know, was like pretty new at DC. And Paul was Joe's assistant. So Paul just kept coming over and saying, Joe, you got to take a break. You got to take a break. You've been doing this since 10 in the morning. And he's going, no, 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 these people are waiting. I'm going to keep going. So I kept, you know, had the suspense of, am I going to get to see him? Because I'm still five people away at like, you know, 3.30 in the afternoon. And uh, I just, each person then, Paul just kept coming up and, you know, telling him, you got to go. Now we have to go to dinner. You got to go get something to eat. No, no, no. A couple more people. So I get up to Joe and Joe looks at my stuff, which was all samples from the coloring book okay. work that I'd done and activity book. And he's looking at this Wonder Woman picture and he's got this puzzled look on his face. He's like, where are the stars on her pants? And I was like, well, no, you see the stars are in the background and the kids are supposed to. And he was like, I don't get this. What is this? And then I'm thinking my fate is sunk. And Paul Levitz comes back to tell him to go to, you know, to, to take a break again. And Paul comes by and he goes, Joe, we got to, oh, he looks down at the work, at the artwork and he goes, oh, Jerry Edway, we've been trying to get a hold of you. And I'm like, well, oh, <laughs> after all this whole day. So I, I went home with, they had my number and I had their number. And um, probably the Monday after the show, I got a call from uh, Paul with a, an eight-page tryout story to ink over Carmine Infantino. Cool. So it was like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't oh you give me somebody really bad? <laughs> <laughs> so I was totally, uh, and I was still working a full, this full-time job at the commercial art place. So I was faced with trying to do the eight pages after work and on the weekend. And um, I got it done, sent it in. They were happy. They sent me another and another. And then, then they started offering me, you know, full-time work. So I think by the end of 1980, I um, I actually accepted to do All Star Squadron in December of, of then and went freelance full time in February of 1981, and haven't looked back. That's excellent, man. And um, well, first of all, a couple of things regarding that story. Am I right? Was the publisher for the coloring book was it Western? Yes. So yes. And, and they were in, in Racine, Wisconsin, which is kind of halfway between Milwaukee and Chicago, I guess. Oh, okay. Because oh. I wasn't sure if it was. Dell and Western, that company, which I know also did comics, but also would do licensing yeah. things. So is it the yeah, same it was separate. They were separate. Yeah, it was the same company, but they were separate entities. Dell was based in um, New York City, and Western was their, they did pub, uh, they did um, puzzles, yeah. uh, games, coloring books, and those magic slates were their big thing. You know, sure. Anybody remembers anybody old enough to remember well, the magic slate. Sadly, but they had this we template. <laughs> well, they had this thing where they, they the, these must have been money makers for them because I did quite a bit of magic slate work over, you know, the couple of years at the studio. And then when I got out and was working at D.C., I still would get calls from them to do some freelance stuff. So I wound up doing a bunch of toy property magic slates, which were really difficult because they had to, they were printed in such a way that they they must not have wasted any cardboard because <laughs> it was like a a u shaped frame um and the artwork had to run very it was you know they'd ask for all this artwork but it was it was such a weird shape like i said it was a it was a more of an upside down u but they would want art running up the you know the left side across and then down and it didn't matter what the property was because sometimes the properties were you couldn't you couldn't do any bleed if anybody knows what bleed is you couldn't bleed there so you, you know you you had no you had to end your figure in the in that live space and sometimes you'd get a car you know and a car is like okay that's how am i going to draw this car unless it's straight on but then you had to have some kind of flow there these things were really tricky design wise and uh 
I guess I, I was able to figure it out for them because, like I said, that was one I, I think I wound up doing um, a couple extras for over the years, like GoBots was the Transformers. <laughs> that was the other Japanese property that they, I guess, the Western thought would be a big hit. Uh, a big hit, yeah. And uh, it's just funny, you know, the, the, there's like a like a battlefield of toy properties that were kind of cool but never got traction back in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Am I right? Magic Slates were kind of, you had the stylus and you would, is that where you'd like kind of trace or, yeah. you know, draw things? It had a, right, right. There was a plastic sheet over yes. a, a kind of a wax board and the you'd draw and the, the plastic would stick to the wax and yep. then you'd pull it up and it would erase and you could, you know, clearly as long as you didn't engrave or rip the plastic, you could keep using those indefinitely. Yeah, they were great. Oh, no, yeah, and man. especially in that low-tech era. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. man. And it was a great way for, for kids to learn how to draw. And, oh, you know, yeah. again, you well, make plus, a mistake, yeah. you pull up the plastic, and you got the blank slate again, <laughs> and you start over. Plus, it's a, it's a perfect thing for for that period of time because nobody's artwork was saved, so all their terrible magic slate drawings are gone. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Etch-A-Sketch. They were, yeah. you know, inten- intentionally meant to disappear, like the Snapchat of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good call. 70. Absolutely, man. That's <laughs> awesome. You're right. Low tech Snapchat. That's fantastic. Very funny, man. So yeah. So All Star Squadron. I got to tell you, man. I I am one of those kids. I think because I grew up at the very end of the 80 page Giants and the 100 page Spectaculars. So you'd get those Justice League 100 page Spectaculars oh, right. and stuff, and they would have the reprints of the Justice Society stories and just the the costumes. And the look, I mean, I remember reading in one of those a reprint of the showcase story where it was Dr. Fate and Our Man, and uh, Alan Scott, uh, his Green Lantern, shows up at the end of the story. And it's like, oh, here's Green Lantern. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not Green Lantern. He's got blonde hair. He's got a purple and red outfit with a cape. What the hell? Who is this guy? And it was fantastic. It's like, wow. And then you, you meet all the other, you know, in the crossovers, the JLA, JSA crossovers. And just those great uh, costume designs for Starman yeah, yeah. and, you know, Brave and Bold's with Wildcat and stuff. So, right. yeah, man, I was a huge fan. And then, you know, obviously Roy, you know, being and, and certainly un- knowing Roy Thomas's history and his love of the JSA, did you have that love or was it just, hey, great, first assignment, I'm in? Well, my familiarity, I, I was, I think it's, I'm trying to remember, I, mo- I discovered Marvel Comics when I was probably, it was in 67, May of 67, so I was. I, I would have been nine years old, I guess. Um, and once I discovered Marvel, nobody else existed up until, I mean, I made, I made a few exceptions and it's kind of funny to think back on this, but I remember buying Captain Action that DC did because sure. I loved the toy. I had the Captain Action figures, but for the most part, it took until I, I would say when Kirby came over to DC in 70 or 71, mm-hmm. I guess it was, that I broke my, uh, you know, my rule, and it was like, well, you know, some of these DCs are cool, and I discovered Neil Adams, and <laughs> um, what my my JSA moment really was with the when they did the, I think Paul Levitz and Joe Staten and Bob Layton did the the JSA story where they were where they kind of disbanded the one with the Spear of Destiny. It was a special. I don't know if you remember yes, that. Yes, I a, remember it well. Okay. The Last Days of the Justice Society. <laughs> right, That's what right. it was called. And Absolutely. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm wrong here. I'm, I'm actually trying to remember the timeline, but it was either that or the uh, Wally Wood 
um, Rick Estrada uh, all-star comics that they revived in, in the 70s. And, and I was a big Wally Wood fan. Sure. So that was, you know, like, again, probably saw Wally Wood first in <laughs> Captain Action. <laughs> you know, so yeah, it's man. funny how yeah, the, man. a toy property can draw you over that. But, <clears throat> yeah, those those were cool. And my favorite thing in the Wally Wood run of that was the Golden Age Superman because it was like, wow, this is a Superman who looks kind of kind of different and Absolutely. he's got white hair. Yes. And I also remember Our Man standing out, of course, Power um, Power Girl. Yes. But yeah. um, uh, what was the other one? Because Wally Wood just did a great Our Man. There was just what he did with the blacks on the costume and the mask and stuff. Um, so those those were elements that, that definitely appealed to me. And, and when I got to All-Star Squadron, I mean, Roy's enthusiasm and his, you know, um, I mean, this guy, this was like the book that he wanted to do since he was a kid. So, Absolutely, yes. You know, those those are often uh, fraught with, with problems because you're almost, <laughs> you know what I mean, you love it too much, that uh, then the company has too much leverage over you or whatever. You know, it's too easy to hurt your feelings, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but I was able to learn kind of on, that, on the job, and Roy sent me a box um, of uh, literally a cardboard, you know, box full of xeroxes of 1940 stories with each of the characters the versions or the type of costume and the artist that he liked from his childhood so that was my my way my reference for um because i was doing finishes and uh, finishes are always hard to kind of hard to explain but rich buckler technically was doing layouts okay um, and layouts means, in, in, in some ways, layouts is like the guy would put in all the, the storytelling and draw the figures, but wouldn't necessarily put the shading. And, uh, you know, costume details were supposed to be there, but shading and stuff was usually not. But mm-hmm. in Rich's case, it was more like he did kind of, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but there were more like sloppy pencils rather than, you know, he didn't do it. Some Some spots were left a lot to be added in, but a lot of it was just, pulling it together from um he had this thing where he would do neil adams swipes and i i'd heard from joe staten who's one of the first pros i think i had um contact with but joe had said oh you know rich has got like a bunch of kids working for him and he just basically has cutouts of all these comics with poses and then he pastes he, he pastes them on the page and says here put this here put this here um, almost like art directing, and then these kids would lightbox these poses onto the pages, and then he would go over it and you know like maybe unify it somehow. Sure. Um, uh, but he was do- you know that was his method, like his Henry Ford uh, assembly line <laughs> method to, to do what amounted to like maybe four or five pages a day under his DC contract. Crazy. So, um, but yeah, so that was uh, that was um, basically the deal was I was I was supposed to kind of unify everything and. And double check costume details because he was, you know, moving fast, and and Roy was very particular. So, I would get these pages with tiny handwritten margin notes that Roy would put in, change, you know, change Robot Man to Liberty Bell. I mean, stuff that really wasn't in the realm of a finisher, even. <laughs> you know, yeah. a lot of redrawing and stuff. Um, but uh, it was it was exciting and scary. You know, that's all I can say is uh, I've told this to Roy too. Roy was really hard on me. Because I was the the new guy, and uh, they basically, you know, his fir- the first thing he told me, which again is like talk about people with no filters, and it was in a nice. I mean, it, uh, you know, I don't have any bad feelings, and he and I are friends. We always chat and have fun at conventions and stuff. But 
at the time, it was very difficult because the first thing he told me with this, he sent me single space pages, and I mean multiple pages, panel by panel of the whole first job that I did, which was the preview that ran in Justice, Justice League. Oh, yes. It was like a pa- panel by panel thing telling me what I got wrong. Oh, but he boy. prefaced it with, I thought Dick Giordano was going to be the finisher on this book. So, you know, um, obviously I'm still adjusting and I think there's something to work with here, but here's what you got wrong. And it was it's single, I mean, single spaced, two pages is a lot. And that went on for pretty much every issue that I did up until I think I started penciling the book. By then he kind of trusted, he knew wow. I was gonna, wasn't going to screw up that the Golden Age Green Lantern is left-handed, you know, et cetera. There's not a lot of details. <laughs> but uh, but it was. I always look at it as it was like going through the gauntlet, you know. Um, it, it really was. And all the while this was going on, technically Len Wein was the editor, and Len was the guy who put me on the book. So Len would try to run interference for me, you know, in in ways that made it worse for me in a way. So I was kind of caught between, you know, Len, who had who had written the the JSA characters and the Golden Age characters, and was a huge fan of those. Sure. And Roy, who definitely butted heads over what this book was going to be, you know, DC, and I think Len really wanted a Justice Society book, and Roy wanted All Star Squadron to be these second string characters that he built up into something and um sales wise the justice society book might have done better but i think from roy's perspective he basically reinvented a bunch of second string characters and made people like them absolutely you know? yeah i mean that was the strength to me and i enjoyed drawing liberty bell and robot man and, and johnny quick they were all fun yeah man <clears throat> so yeah they were yeah, it was it was an interesting time though <laughs> I can appreciate it. was a retro book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, it was set during World War II. And, you know, Roy had already, uh, you know, shown his ability to write great World War II stories for the modern era doing the Invaders at Marvel. Yep. And, yep. yeah, I was I was a fan of that stuff, absolutely, with, uh, oh, my God, and now I'm blanking, uh, Johnny Hazard's creator, Frank Robbins. Oh, yeah, yeah, Frank Robbins, yeah. Yeah, great I mean, the problem stuff. with those the problem with those things is even back then there is a – an industry kind of bias. It was a, the era where superheroes kind of uh, really squeezed out everything. I mean, you still had Sergeant Rock and you had Weird War Tales. Yeah. I mean, DC yeah. was publishing some, you know, the mystery books and stuff. But that, as that comic store situation opened up, a lot of that other stuff disappeared, and it was pretty much just superhero stuff. So, oh, that's Roy interesting. Was, you know, the direct market yeah, kind mean, of killed the other genres. Yeah, no, I, th- I I I firmly believe that because the direct market at the time was pretty much rabid superhero fans. True. I mean, you know, if you went on a newsstand, you would get people who weren't necessarily fanatical comic fans, but they liked you know Tarzan or they liked Sergeant Rock or or what have you. Yeah. But once yeah. the once that comic market you know became prominent, it you could tell what they were buying, and they were buying superheroes. So, I mean, DC for years went through that with, I mean, even with, like, some of their mainstream, Batman always seemed to have some juice in that market, but Superman was a character that you could not sell in the direct market. And it came down to, at that point, I mean, people didn't used to order through previews. You would just go into a comic store. So the comic store owner was the most important man in that chain because whatever he ordered is what his fan, his uh, customers got. And, uh, you know, in D.C.'s case, they were lucky that they still had 
a substantial enough newsstand pr- uh, presence because Superman always sold, you know, probably two thirds on newsstand, one third in the comic stores, whereas a lot of books were almost immediately 50-50 or what have you, or even, you know, maybe 60-40 as uh, the, the comic stores got more, you know, more, there were more of them or whatever. But uh, Understood. Yeah. Well, and also you had those uh, Baxter paper direct market product <laughs> and then, right. you know, two months later or whatever, then you'd have the, the news rag or whatever, right. you know, stock uh, paper on the, on the right, newsstands right. and everything too. Yeah, no, that was, you know, that, that really was kind of my, high school and and early college kind of experiences when the Mm -hmm. direct market was brand new. And I've heard you in other uh, interviews say that it was interesting that Superman sold better on the newsstands versus the direct market. And and that's really interesting. And, of course, today it really is kind of still the same case where even though you do order your comics through previews, uh, store store owners really do dictate what they stock. And certainly in today's creator-owned world and stuff, uh, along with – DC and Marvel and, and the other main, main publishers and stuff. No, it very much is the store owner's taste that dictates yeah. how well a book sells or not. Yeah, and I mean, in in the beginning, of course, the the stores had no his, historical information on what would sell. I mean, other than they knew their fans liked X-Men and they liked, uh, you know, the maybe, like I said, Batman always seemed to have a uh, an appeal because people always saw, oh, that was, the, I guess, maybe the darkening of the era, you know what I mean? Sure. That that started probably it was probably hand in hand with the seventies um you know movies becoming more more dark and and the the pressure really for Batman was a character that probably could go a little bit more adult as well whereas Superman is pretty firmly fixed as a or was always fixed as a all an all ages character you know you could pick up it, you know and that that's important too because you could pick up a comic book and give give a kid here's your here's a comic to my nephew who's on the a long drive or whatever, and you could not feel like he was going to be somehow corrupted by sure. by something horrible, you know. Um, so that, that all that fits into into the the market. But yeah, All Star Squadron being a, set in the '40s was kind of a even though in that era it had at least had other books, you know, uh, companion books set in the World War II or or the Old West or whatever. It still kind of went against the grain. So I think the market kind of pressure on a to do more of a current day type of book is is feels like that was at work and and doing Infinity Inc to a degree as well. Yes, because the characters were it was set in the present day and it was, you know, uh, we had already I think by that time I'd drawn All Star Squadron through issue twenty I want to say twenty seven twenty eight somewhere around there we were or maybe twenty six is where I forget where Infinity Inc was was where we debuted it but we had been working on it for uh developing costumes and stuff i think from about 80 i'm mean, gonna say 83 but it could have been yeah it was probably 82 83 and i think infinity inc was came out in 84 but um but yeah so that was the the, the sales on all-star squadron had also leveled out fairly um early i think the first issue sold a respectable like 200,000 and then DC actually implemented um, royalties in between, like the, the the month that the royalty the royalty system, which was a new thing, and you know we're giving artists and writers and everybody a a piece of the sales. That happened with the second issue of All Star Squadron, which you know generally there's always a big drop off. Sure. Um, even back then, everybody would kind of buy a first issue or buy even two copies of a first issue. Wow. 
you know the, the the hardcore comic fan would you know plunk down their their uh, money and and maybe that issue would be worth something two years later or three years later. Um, so there was always like an inflation. So the first one sold really well. If we had gotten a royalty on that, I think we'd all been like really thrilled. But the second one, I think it had already dropped to maybe 130 or something. And uh, so we only made royalties on the 30. Thousand that sold over a hundred because that's that was the threshold. That's the deal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So by by issue four, I believe or five, we were hovering around a hundred. Which ah. again, in and you know, you, you look back on that and you think, well, that's a hundred thousand sales. That's pretty good. That means you're reaching a hundred thousand people as opposed to you know like nowadays where some of these books sell fourteen thousand or right. whatever. Yeah. You know? I mean, it was a larger audience, basically. Well, sure. But, but I think that's when Rich left. Um, he left around that time when maybe sales numbers indicated, yeah, this isn't going to have a royalty. And at that time, you know, I mean, that was a, a valid thing. People would would um, try to get on a book that was good selling because it meant that their income was going to be supplemented beyond a page rate. Certainly. Uh, you know, I unfortunately was never wired that way. <laughs> I always, I always tried to do things that I enjoyed or that I felt were, you know, going to um, be fun to do or, you know, whatever. I didn't really ever follow the you have to draw X-Men to get popular thing, you know. I hear you, man. I always, I always felt like that was, and again, I, I, everybody's got their own, you know, their own rules, but I always felt like pandering was one of the worst things you could do. Sure. And that felt like a pandering thing to, you know, um I'm going to do X-Men, or I'm going to do whatever, you know, whatever it was. Like, when I did the FF with uh, with Byrne, it was like, well, I was a big Fantastic Four fan, but I was also a big John Byrne fan. Certainly. So. <clears throat> what was, how long were you on uh, Fantastic Four with John? Uh, I did eight issues okay. of uh, Inks and Finish. It started out as finishes, and then I just said, look, you, you need to pencil this, because the book is selling on you, it's not selling on me. I was I was just feeling a little uncomfortable um you know you know what i mean it's like i was the i was the the guest star in the tv show and john was the star i hear you and his look <laughs> his look was a big part of, of it and when, it he, was, when he started when he started doing breakdowns it, it you know i was left to put in some of the the surface details and stuff and and i felt kind of like i was there was some the very first issue i did uh, that that i experienced this i said you know i'm, I'm I'm working too hard. I'm not sure I'm getting him. So from that point on, uh, he, he, he went to pencils, which was, it was all uh, mutually agreed. I was happier that way, too. But um, eight issues. And then I went to Crisis. Wow. Yeah. And then, and yeah, you did a lot of uh, finishes for, for, for George on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was funny because these things always, or when you look back on them, you think it's it seems kind of amusing. At the time, it's always like, kind of stressful because you're thinking well gee the reason i left dc i left um i i bailed on infinity inc i did my what i was contracted for which was 12 issues i had they dc told me they they counted the the uh all-star squadron the one issue and the annual that i did as part of that 12 so i was done by 10 okay that was my that was to to fulfill to fill the contract and to get my character equity on the in those in the book itself, the character equity meant that if they ever made a movie or they made a toy or whatever of the Infinity Inc. group, Roy Thomas, Mike Macklin, and I would each share 
like a, a percentage of I think it was like ten percent of any royalty money or I mean licensing money. Okay. So it was worth it to to fulfill that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was I was just a little bit disappointed because I couldn't get a page rate increase. It was really simple. It was one of those stupid things where it was really over. I think I was at eighty something per page for pencils, and I wanted. I wanted more, and it was like, no, that's where you're at for the level. And then I, I, I got a call from Marvel, and they said, hey, what's your page rate? And I told them, I said, but I'm looking for a raise. Said, well, we'll give you 100 So Marvel was willing to pony up 100 and then bump my ink rate up as well to get me. And then the minute I, I told DC, I said, hey, they're offering this. I'm just going to go. And from that time on, then they spent you know a lot of effort to try to get me back. <laughs> so all my rates went up. The minute I left, that's always DC. the way. That's always yeah, the way. Now. It is. They don't it appreciate is. you and until you threaten to leave or do leave. So no, I yeah, I, I come from radio. It's the same thing, man. Absolutely, you know. Well, and that's the that's one of the things that I look back in with a little regret in my career is that I think I always followed my my heart in a way, and I worked with the people that I liked, and I think I I pretty much lost that. Uh, negotiating power especially when you know later on with dc i just basically should have left when i was unhappy and instead it was like well i like dc i like the characters etc etc so there's you know when you're younger i think it's easier to do that than when you have kids and you're looking at kids in college and what have you the the pressures change but ultimately i think the best thing for your career i tell that to anybody say look you can be loyal but ultimately you have to you have to be valued and sometimes, most times, you're valued if you leave or you have another offer. You know, that's, I guess, the lesson that uh, is harder to do when you're freelancing because, you know, when you're in a job that pays a salary, it might be easier to negotiate something than if you're a freelancer because you can be easily replaced as a freelancer. So you do, you, you kind of always, I mean, I think you always are a little bit more insecure about your, your standing because you don't, you're not... You don't have, none of it's guaranteed. Agreed. So. Yeah, no, it's um, and especially today in uh, today's gig economy, where uh, really, <laughs> really people are kind of, uh, if not freelancers, contractors, and are always right. looking. But you know, yeah, it's if if now you mentioned if I may, and it's if this is too personal, forgive me, but I'll uh, I'll ask the question anyway and take the consequences. Um, <laughs> you, you've created a lot of characters that have kind of made their way into television and film. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think of Cat Grant, obviously, in Supergirl. And aren't you, right. aren't you a co-creator of Cat Grant? Yeah. Are they taking and, care uh, of you? And I'll just leave it at that. Well, here's the the deal is as a, I mean, it's kind of a weird deal. So here's how it works. Um, for example, if it's a movie, here's what it comes down to: when when DC was part of Warner, mm-hmm. but they weren't necessarily part of Warner movies. DC could sell a property to any studio. And this actually gets back to negotiating and, and threatening to quit a job because when, when DC was able to sell Superman as a property, Warner Brothers probably retained like first dibs. Mm-hmm. But once you get past Superman, there was always like, oh, uh, TriStar Pictures or these other, diff- the other, other production companies could license this. And that licensing money went into DC's um, uh, ledger or whatever, right. rather than Warner Brothers, because DC was still a separate-run company. 
So there was more negotiating power back then because multiple studios could negotiate to do whatever it was, Firestorm. Not that any of these happened, but money paid in that more competitive um, situation was better. So the licensing fee that was paid, for example, even for Lois and Clark, which was done through through um, uh, Lorimar, I think. Okay. And then Warner might have distributed, but it was I think it was Lorimar was the production company. The licensing deal on Lois and Clark paid a percentage to myself and to Marv Wolfman as co-creators of Cat Grant. Okay. We each okay. got up like a fee of I, I'm and again I'm just going to spitball. I, I remember it being like three hundred and seventy, three hundred eighty dollars per episode. Okay. First run. Okay. So she was only in the first season, but it was you know three hundred and eighty times 22 episodes sure. was a good chunk of money at the end of that. You know, you didn't get it as it went along. You got it at one in one uh, uh, thing. Okay. But then, but then once Warner Brothers encompassed in, DC, there's all the properties have to be spun out of Warner Brothers. So there's no competitive bidding for the right. Right. So the right money has gone kind of uh, definitely has fallen. So, for example, Supergirl TV show produced by Warner Brothers mm-hmm. The amount of money per episode for Cat Grant probably dropped by at least a hundred dollars. Wow! So that means two hundred dollars. You know, in other words, Marv and I both probably took a hit of a hundred dollars from nineteen, you know, nineties. Yeah. Um, so, and it's really just because these companies are not only controlling the the properties, but they're they're generating the the you know, the creations or whatever, the spinoffs in TV and movies, they're, they're generating them themselves. So the licensing money had dropped off. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's not a, I mean, they're still paying it. And these things are by contract. Um, when you get an equity letter for a character, they're, they're you know, they're, they have to pay you. But no one's getting rich from, uh, for example, like even that Cat Grant thing, that wasn't, it was a nice extra money. You can't ever... Yeah you know, complain about that, but for having a character guest star on a show, it's, you know, maybe you go out to dinner on a $40 payment. Jeez, (laughs) wow. It's not a lot. Now, if if you're in a movie, the movie payment's going to be in the thousands of dollars. Okay. This this is where it works if your character's in a movie. Like, Professor Hamilton was a character that Marv Wolfman and I created for Adventures of Superman right in the first storyline. And uh, he was, it doesn't matter if the character's in for 10 seconds or, you know, is the second co-lead or whatever, the the amount of licensing money is the same. So we probably each got, you know, in the, I'd say, maybe $30,000 range. Wow. After, like a year after the movie. Man of Steel, so right? Because Richard Schiff from, L- yeah, yeah, from yeah, Westwood right. played uh, right. Hamilton. Yeah. Right. So that's like that's a one-time payment, and then maybe you get residual stuff from some other, you know, money from the movie. It's not. I guess I don't even know how that works, but you'll get like a smaller amount later on because it's still. I think a licensing fee is still paid for. So DVDs you know, or or when it yeah, runs on yeah. cable, things like that. Right. Okay. Right. So I mean, it's and again, it's nothing that you could retire on. You know, that's I the problem is you yeah. you 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 don't know what's happening. It's the type of thing that maybe. Is is found money and it's great, but it always screws up your taxes because you don't know it's coming. Oh, you know, and then when it comes, it's like, oh wait, how, we have to change our estimated tax payments or whatever. Sure, it's sure. It's always 
it's always hard to adjust to. And again, that's a, uh, I'm not complaining because it's a dumb thing to complain about, but it it's just not regular. That's that's why uh, people keep working. <laughs> I understand. Well, and I, hey, man, you know, obviously when you're ready to retire, that's fine. But you know, yeah, we want you working and we want you employed. And I mean, I'm, <laughs> like I said, so yeah, it's interesting to hear that it is a double-edged sword and it's a curse and a blessing, yeah. I guess. Well, the cool thing is, I mean, it's still pretty pretty thrilling to have a a character pop up on sure. TV or in a movie. I mean, it's it's anybody who says it isn't, it would be lying. Even if it's not exactly the way you envisioned it, you can be disappointed, but still, you know, like wow, this is kind of nice. And um, uh, the one thing that you don't get though is you really get, you know, you don't get much acclaim outside of that small circle of comics. You know, I mean, people who remember are the only ones that. Um, but that's still, as a personal thing, it's like wow, this is cool that this character somehow has, you know, 30 years later, whatever, people still remember it enough to put it on a TV show and other people then get to enjoy it. So that's, that's still still a neat thing. Absolutely, man. No, and, and, you know, as an older reader and stuff, sure, that's a, that is totally a thrill when these TV shows suddenly do dig deep and it's like, oh, my God, look. I mean, even well before the Suicide Squad movie, hey, look, Pam Greer is Amanda Waller. That's fantastic. Right. And, and the cartoon right, right. certainly, too. You know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know if Cat ever made it to uh, the Bruce Tim uh, universe or anything like that. I think she did. Did she? I think, okay. I mean, she's popped up. Yeah, it's, it's funny because there's another character that, at the time when we when I was doing the Adventures of Superman with, with Tom Grummet drawing it, mm-hmm. um, Jeanette Kahn, who was publisher at the time, Jeanette had said, and was this is something I was always aware of. I don't know that it, I don't know if the other creators were were really thinking this way, but I grew up. In Milwaukee, I grew up in a mostly Hispanic neighborhood, so um, my friends were Mexican and Puerto Rican, and you know, you were part of that mm-hmm. neighborhood. Yeah. And I used when I got on Superman, I said, "This is this this whole property is really white," and now um, you know, I felt like because I you could you see it. You, you, don't, you don't. I guess a lot of people don't realize, but when you're when we were kids, we're reading a comic. Superman could be us or whatever. Right. I mean, we could see it in there. Um, but for, for some black kid or some, you know, Puerto Rican kid or whatever, they're looking for a character, and they may say, we'll gravitate to Wolverine or whatever character, but it's not really reflective of them. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've always yeah. felt, I mean, I've always been sensitive to that. And when we did, um, uh, basically had to force <laughs> Gangbuster into, into the Superman stuff. But Gangbuster, to me, was, there really weren't, very many Hispanic characters. True. You know, that was a big deal. Yes. And I made him a very important part of it. So Gangbuster existed, but then, you know, Jeanette had said, are there, she had just talked, I mean, she was, she always traveled in these great circles, but she said, oh, I just came from some meeting with, uh, like, it was someone, either an alumni or someone who was connected with Brown University. And they said, you know, could you? Do you think you could uh, add some character to the Daily Planet staff who might be a Brown University graduate or whatever? So, I said to, to Mike Carlin, "It's like, well, sure, we can add. There's, you know, there's always room. There's a lot of reporters there, and a lot of them are background characters, and you develop them after a while, or they just always exist in the background. And you go, hey, what's that guy's name? He's always in their background. So we came up with this uh, uh, Ronnie Troop. Yes, it was Ron Troop. And we wrote some, you know, stories around him and everything. And the the funny thing was, I basically borrowed the name from a guy who was doing sheetrock when we, you know, did some renovations on the house. It was like, 
Ron Troop. That sounds good. You know, that's a good name. And uh, yeah, so I used the 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 last name. I just thought Troop sounded good. And that character, weirdly enough, even though I don't know that anybody has done anything with him after I left Superman, but I used I did a bunch of stories with him and his family and yes. stuff interacting. And after a while, I noticed Jeff Johns may have used him. I think in in his Superman Secret Origin thing. And I did see him. He popped up on. I want to say he popped up on one of the, the the TV shows at one point, but he's been in cartoon stuff as well. Just like he'll pop up, have a few lines or whatever. So that's also a uh, a licensed property in a way. But it's that's kind of fun. I wish Gangbuster had a better run after I left. But you know, a lot of times you either they fall by the wayside, which. I don't know which is worse if they if no one uses them or if someone uses them like they did with Professor Hamilton and they turned him bad again and killed him. You know, <laughs> like well, the whole point of this guy was he was supposed to be you know the bad guy who reformed, and he's reformed. It's not that he's going to then betray everybody and then get killed or whatever. I just I always hated that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, no, he was great. And also, I was rereading um, the lead up to Doomsday, and he's the one who kind of isn't he the one that tells. Superman, hey, you know, your your body is kind of like a battery where you kind right, of collect right. solar energy, and if you don't replenish it, you could, like, be at a very low energy level or whatever. Right, right. And no, he was great. Or coming up with uh, his uh, space apparatus, so when he was in exile, right. uh, and which right. which was such a great visual. of, I mean, I, you, you do love Superman being cosmic and running around the universe and everything, but I did like the way you guys all scaled back his powers that he would kind yeah. of need... A breathing apparatus, and it was kind of yeah. more astronauty in the way that he was yeah. traveling through space. I thought that was cool. Well, I think, I mean, it's one thing to be able to be invulnerable and be able to fly in space, but it always felt like for us, I mean, I know, like, when I got on the book, um, when I got on Adventures of Superman, mm-hmm. it was me and Byrne was doing the uh, two other books. Right, Superman in Action, books, so yeah, yeah. Marv, I think, oh, I mean, again, I don't know, Marv, I think, never really found his way there because of that. Maybe there was too much, you know, um, it's hard to it's hard to be, like, the second guy if you're used to being the first guy, I suppose. Sure. That's a big thing. So, and John was definitely the guy leading it because he's the guy who did the relaunch. He did the uh, the retelling of the origin, Absolutely. et cetera. Yeah. But, um, but so my goal was always to try to, have him scaled back. I didn't. I didn't want him pushing planets. I didn't want that type of thing because to me it was not relatable. I always wanted to make him as human as possible, which is why I love the fact that Byrne had reintroduced the Clark as you know the, the way he was, where he was pretty much ninety-eight percent based on what his parents put into him and what his his growing up was all about. Because I you know I always felt like that was a valid. Thing, no matter what, if someone told you when you were 20 years old that you're an alien, I mean, it could screw you up. But I think ultimately you are what you what you're imprinted with as a kid. Absolutely, you know? and I agree. He had loving parents, and he had uh, you know all these uh, all these uh, adventures in Smallville, and that that was always an appeal to me because being a Midwestern boy, I moved from uh, Wisconsin from Milwaukee. I, I moved to Connecticut, which then gave me access to New York City, and I always had that, like, wow, I'm like Clark Kent going to the Daily Planet, except I'm working, you know, going to DC Comics or whatever. <laughs> and I did that after I'd, I think I'd been, 
uh, maybe within six months of, of starting to draw Superman. And that was, that was my way of also getting more involved in the stories because I knew I, could, I had a really hard time offering story input from long distance, especially in the days of pre-internet. You had to call somebody and, you know, you never knew if they were liking your idea or not, you know. So once we, once I moved east, I was able to attend the very first story conference, which was um, John Byrne, George Perez, Andy Helfer, um, myself, and I think, I'm not even sure who else might have been there editor-wise, but um, it was at John Byrne's house, and we discussed the action comics, I believe it was 600, where Wonder Woman and Superman were going to have a, a possible crossover, maybe a little romance. Sure. Because Perez was doing Wonder Woman or launch, yeah, he had, he had started Wonder Woman at that point, and uh, and then we also did one for Millennium, which was another a crossover where I was able to actually offer valid, you know, these these things when you're when you you're like a little, I'm not, I was never a very confident person, and when you're throwing out ideas, I was always like in school, I would throw like good comeback lines or joke lines to my friends to say so that I didn't have to say them. <laughs> And then they either got laughed for them or not, but I always knew that was my line. So when I got into into sitting in a room with John Byrne and George Perez, I was, you know, definitely not on equal footing because these guys were both superstars in comics. Um, But I'd throw out ideas and they'd be like, that's pretty good. Yeah, okay, that's good. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to, you know, you run with it, basically. So by the time of Millennium, when we're talking about Millennium, I remember... Byrne had a plan that, uh, and he came. He came to this meeting with this plan. And he said, "Here's this idea, and I think it's great." Cat Grant is a manhunter agent, because the concept was that manhunters were, being, were had been planted years and years at the beginnings of all these characters' career, careers or their childhoods. They were planted there to observe them, and the manhunters were, I think, Legion of Superhero villains or whatever some into some race or whatever yeah they're tied to the and green lantern gonna, the green lantern universe right too. so they were like so sleeper, attack, they were like sleeper agents right, basically right right so so burn says cat grant and i'm like whoa wait a minute you know cat grant's only been around for a year at most or it was maybe even yeah it was about like about a year when we were discussing it and i said that feels like not enough time if you're a sleeper agent and i said Here's my idea, and you can say no, but I think this is actually makes perfect sense, and it's not going to affect the books that much because Lana Lang is not really in the books. She's a she's a past part of Clark's history. I said Lana Lang, as a manhunter agent, makes much more sense because she knew him as a kid, and it was like you know suddenly it got really quiet in the room, and I thought, I thought this is good or bad, and then it was like, wow. You're right. That's much better. Hilarious. So I, you know, in the space of that comment, I saved, I saved Cat Grant from uh, whatever her fate would Extinction. have been. Exactly. <laughs> but it made you know again, it was a story thing, and it just popped in my head like this. This makes more sense if you're going to watch somebody and you know the person you're watching is from Krypton or whatever, then you're going to put somebody in their childhood, and maybe that person subtly influences or what have you. So they were, they were, and that that was really the, I think, the beginning of that getting a little confident or more confident as far as pitching stuff. Because I always threw ideas at Roy, I threw ideas at Marv, um, uh, you know. But most times you're at the mercy of, well, I don't want to do that, or they'd come up with a reason why it couldn't work or something. So 
No, I you know, well, and Cat Grant became a, a very complicated character. She was kind of yeah. an aggressive, you know. And I, I really appreciated that they kind of kept a lot of that in Callista Flockhart's uh, portrayal of oh, Cat yeah. as well in Supergirl. Yeah. And you know, uh, she had a was it a special needs kid that Cat had in the comics? No, her. I mean, again, this was 1987. Yeah. But her big, her big dark secret, which Marv had hinted at at the beginning, I don't know that he ever totally knew. Sometimes you just come up with something and then you go, I'll think of it later, <laughs> which happens a lot. But he had, when he revealed her deep dark secret, it was just that she was divorced and she had a kid. Okay. And that, okay. you know, in a, in a situation like, I guess the way it works is if you're dating, obviously, and you're young, and you're dating and you have kids, it could be a problem sure. for dating, but it also is a problem for work if you have a... So she had like a, a, a little, maybe eight or ten-year-old boy or something in the in the story, and that became, and her, you know, her ex-husband, I think we did more with it um, after Marv left, but I think he set up the, the Morgan, um, there was like a, um, was it, they he had a similar name, it wasn't, it wasn't Morgan Edge, but it was something, some guy who was like a, a rich guy who basically, you know, uh, had uh, taken the kid or something in the divorce or was just giving her trouble, you know, something like That's that. That's right. Yes, but, yes. But I, I felt like, again, with each of these characters, the, 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 the key at that moment when I was working with Marv, but especially after when Byrne took over and, and let me co-plot officially, so I got my name on there as a co-plotter, one of my things was always that Byrne had drawn or had had approached Lois Lane a little bit to 1940s Fleischer Superman, and it made it anybody I talked to the fans they were like, "Wow, she's really not very nice. She's so <laughs> mean to him." And so the point of Cat Grant, which you know I think Marv even wanted to do, was to upend that triangle of, of Lois, Superman, and Clark by having, you know, we did much more of this later, but but having. Um, Cat Grant like Clark more than Superman, yes. which then forced Lois to go. Wait, was I wrong about Clark? <laughs> so she was impo- she was an important part of getting Clark and Lois to- together in a logical way, where you'd go, yeah, now I can see why he loves her. Sure. Rather than wow, he's like a masochist because she hates him. <laughs> you know, why is he why is he pining over her? So that was the whole point was to to kind of upend that, and we 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 orchestrated this thing again. It was these were my input. Uh, mostly with even with, with Byrne was to to get Lois with Jose Delgado. Yes. To kind of give her a relief from the Superman, you know, uh, pursuit of Superman. But both of those breaking up that you know Lois and Clark and putting each of them with another romantic partner was meant to kind of give them both perspective on the other person. You know, I do. So that was our that was our forward thinking on it. But uh, and Cat Grant, after the first, I think the first two times I drew Cat, I realized that I didn't really have a, a physical hand handle on her. And uh, I, I I remember meeting um, or John Beatty had his sister Jane. Had, he had sent me a picture, and it was a picture of him and, and Jane or whatever. And I went, Hey, would Jane be willing to be a photo model for Cat Grant? And John said, well, I'll take a bunch of pictures. She'll be happy to do it. So I used Jane Beatty, John's sister. Jane was, and, and she was super attractive, but she had the distinct hairstyle that became, you know, no, the Cat Grant style or whatever. 
Um, and that help. It always helps to to write stuff for a character when you have a feeling for what that character might be or how they might be different. Sure. That's you always have to unlock a character. And uh, I'm jumping ahead, but when I took over writing on Superman, when Byrne had left, I had a, tr- a lot of trouble initially trying to figure out how to write for Lex Luthor. You know, to not make him just a mustache twirling bad guy it was like he had to have some depth and what would his voice sound like to me and and as funny as it is and again it's no reflection of john byrne because john and i i i I, he was so great to me it wasn't like oh like john byrne is lex luther but john has this very distinct way of looking at the world and the very somewhat slightly inflexible like he would create rules about certain things yes uh, you know, then and he would adhere to them, like, and it was, he was just like, this is the way things will be from now on. And so I thought, wow, you know what? I'm typing dialogue, and I started hearing his voice speaking the lines, and it made it, it just unlocked it for me, you know. And John's not an evil genius. I, I mean, he's a genius, but he's not an evil genius. It was just a his speech pattern helped me break away from thinking Lex Luthor via Gene Hackman because. That's kind of limited. Agreed. Um, you know, it was and fun, but you're do... right. It was limited. Go on. Well, it's limited in that, yeah, I mean, he, he's, you know, there was only really one good performance, or, you know, the, the really one good performance in the, to me in the first movie, and then the other ones were a little bit less. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so for, to, do, to do a character and have a, have a voice in your head is, is really important when you're writing. So um, it helped me define who Lex Luthor was, and Roger Stern always, you know, focused a lot of the, on the Lex stuff. And I never told Roger <laughs> that I was hearing John's <laughs> voice uh, when writing it, but uh, but that was it. And and Morgan Edge was the the other evil yes. business guy. And Morgan Edge, I always felt like the difference between him and Lex Luthor was that Lex Luthor had he loved power, and he he would do anything to get power and to keep power, whereas you know. Morgan Edge was the type of guy who probably pulled the wings off of flies as a kid, and, and uh, you know, just uh, just. And I, I illustrated that in one story where I had him run over a, a raccoon on the side of the road when he was driving in the country, and he actually swerves into it to run over it, and that was that was meant to show the difference. It's like, yeah, Lex Luthor's not a serial killer or a total deviant, whereas Morgan Edge is somebody that you wouldn't want your 20-year-old daughter in an elevator with because he's probably not going to act nicely. Wow, you know? yeah. No. So, and that, all that helps. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it all helps in building stories because you can find stories that fit that, you know. I understood, absolutely, man. No, and you know, it's true, and I'm really glad you point out Ron Troop. I forgot you had uh, co-created Ron because also, like you said, Jose Delgado, uh, cry, you know, um, and now I'm blanking again. What was his... What was his uh, we just talked Gangbuster. Gangbuster, thank you. I was going to say Crimebuster. Gangbuster, of course. No, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciated him as a street-level hero and also his love and devotion for Lois and that he was human and when he would, you know, fight his uh, villains and stuff that, you know, he, he wasn't he, like, uh, not was he paralyzed? Yeah, he got par- We had him, uh, he was paralyzed fighting... Uh, a character when with Su- Superman wasn't there basically right. in a movie theater, and he fought a guy he was overmatched with, or and uh, he wound up paralyzed. Which, you know, we uh, 
again, it required a lot of reading. And the funny thing, and again, I don't know how you how this stuff happens, but Jose Delgado as a name of a character kind of sprung out of my childhood. So I had a friend whose name was Juan Delgado, and I thought Delgado's a I mean, there's no yeah, good, strong am, ambiguity good, about the, you know, it's a Hispanic True. name. And, yes. Um, uh, so anyways, when I started reading, on, uh, reading up on uh, paralysis, and I, I knew I wanted to have a subplot of Luther or somebody coming up with some kind of way to stimulate his nerves and get him like exoskeleton or what have you. But I looked, I started reading up, researching um, quadriplegics and the research that was being done at the time with, uh, you know, nerve stimulation and stuff. And it turned out there was a, a, a very prominent uh, doctor. His name was Jose Delgado, who was involved in this research. I'm reading this research. I'm thinking, Wow, that's really weird. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, <clears throat> but um, nice trivia. Yeah, so I mean, each of these things, there's a mechanics to all the stories. You know, mechanical aspects because you're still you need to get a story from point A to point B, or from point A all the way to point Z. Sure. <laughs> and with with Jose Delgado, part of the one of the the key things was for him to be paralyzed, and that played into also the superman identity crisis storyline because gangbuster shows up and it's like well wait he can't be showing up because this guy's paralyzed and that was our you know storyline where superman basically had a developed a little split personality thing going yes. after uh, yes. killing the phantom zone guys so yeah that was that great. became yes and that was a really fun story to reread many many years later because um, i wrote the introduction to a, a recent um omnibus that dc did with that and the exile in space storyline so i read i was reading the the uh identity crisis part and i thought you know this really does hold up i i mean i don't i don't like to pat myself on the back too much but roger and carlin and i did that and with carrie gamble i think drew most of the issues and uh dennis janky inked and and um i think uh Maybe even John Beatty was part of it at that point. Maybe Brett, I think it was before Brett might have been. Um, but yeah, just as a story, it, it held up. And that was, the seeds of that were, went back to burn. Because John had, uh, had had the idea of doing something. I don't think he was going to do it as a, as a reaction to killing the Phantom Zone stuff, because, guys, because that, I think that came up kind of organically while he was drawing that issue. Um, but he had, we had talked about this. Superman somehow maybe a villain creating some split thing in his head maybe Brainiac or something at the time and uh, he had wanted he said well I've got the perfect name Alter Ego and I was like thinking a little protectively of Roy I was thinking well Roy's got Alter Ego right his character yeah I think he has a trademark and I said you know John was like well that doesn't matter it's not a comic book character and I was like well why don't we just use Gangbuster and again, it was like it fell into place because here's a character you didn't have to re- you didn't have to introduce right. a new character. People would go, "Oh, Gangbuster! Yeah, he was isn't he wasn't he around? You know, in Suicide Slump." So they did you know the the characters within the story could know who he was. It wasn't uh, like having to then you know devote time to introduce yet another character. Understood. So having Jose be paralyzed played into that as a as a more organic aspect and. Um, and then when when John quit, that was you know that was going to be our next storyline, pretty much anyways, and it just changed into 
uh, you know, I remember talking to Carl, and it was like, well, we we all had dis- discussions about John killing, having these the Superman kill the Phantom Zone guys, and it's pretty controversial at that time. Yes, and it was a kind of an impulse thing for him because I don't think he initially had that in his plot that Superman was going to kill these. Really, guys. it was but that. He, again, I want to give back backstory for people who may not know about that period because it was it was a long time ago. But yeah, it was <laughs> the po- there was a pocket universe. They were alternate universe uh, versions of right. Zod and Jaxer and I don't remember if right. Ursa was the third uh, Kryptonian right. Phant- Phantom Zone Kryptonian. But there was that amazing right. cover of Superman as jailer and and you know going that one right. step further than Jor-El where I sentence right. you to death and yeah all of a sudden cuz that you know of course that's the knock on the man of steel movie wait a minute superman right. doesn't kill and us older readers right. are like well there was that one time so right, but you, right. but you said and, John and, really didn't you know that really wasn't a, a a big like emotional moment as far as John was concerned in terms of what he was doing well it, I think it it was he knew it was a big thing and I believe like when that when we first talked about the pocket universe story that that story existed to begin with that ex, that existed to appease kind of appease the legion of superhero fans right where how did superboy work with the legion right. if superboy so didn't they gave exist him a, right they gave him a superboy for the for the legion continuity yep. and it was tied into the time trapper who was another legion yes villain guy so but uh but clearly i mean john had gotten clearance to have them kill the guys because the cover would have been done at least you know in advance of the interior of the issue so obviously that was was set but um but it was still kind of shocking and the thing that mike carlin because at, at when burn left mike knew that he was going to bring in roger stern because roger had done some fill-in stuff and and we both worked with roger both loved roger um, but Mike and I were pretty much like the guys we talked among ourselves, and then we would loop Roger in on a conversation or whatever. And again, the, the advantage of being within driving distance or train distance of New York allowed me to do that, which was important. Um, but the idea was, okay, John did it, and John does, you know, he again, making rules, basically, here's why Superman would do it. And I know John had always felt like in the release version of Superman 2, Superman dispatches all three Phantom Zone villains, and if you're watching the movie and you haven't ever ever seen those extras that they cut, those guys are never seen again or re- referenced <laughs> again. It's like, did he just kill them? Because right. he depowered them, and then they go down a chasm right into the ice. So he was always like of a mind that that precedent was set in Superman too. Interesting. So he didn't think he was breaking a big a big rule because that <laughs> is how he read that. And there, you know, so that's, you know, build on that. It did make sense from his point of view. He's on a different world, and these people are more powerful, like three, three, three characters who are as powerful as he is. And once he had them weakened, okay, I'm going to just take them out. <laughs> so, again, none of none of this was done capriciously. I mean, it was it was very very much a part of that story and 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 all that, but. Uh, in a you know in a 1960s 70s whatever Superman comic Superman would have just found a way to rebuild the Phantom Zone projector and send him into the certainly Phantom Zone. certainly so this was an era of uh, you know Rambo and and uh, that's right uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and all this stuff where people just took took things to hand you know understood um, so when when anyways we we inherited that situation because then John quit I mean it was that was his last issue. 
we inherited it. And the thing between Mike and, and myself was Mike had said, Superman's got a code against killing. But how do you have a code against killing unless you've done it? Interesting. In other words, yeah. that became that became the, the, the hub of that was that he, you know, had experienced this and had regrets. And obviously, like anybody, would have, it would torture him. Sure. So, you know, on top of that torture part is that he then wound up having this split personality where he became gangbuster as a vigilante, kind of more hard-nosed Batman 80s, you know, that type of of character. And uh, that side of his personality allowed him to vent that, uh, that, that stuff. And when he realizes you know the that he's he's been doing it he doesn't trust himself and that's why he exiles himself into space yes. so i mean all of that was very much organically grew out of you know that out of everything we we ever plant seeds for in these stories um they all have a, an end goal and of course dc at any point above us could have said no that's stupid don't do it and then we would have had to change our mind and do something else but they gave us you know they they really did trust us to do this stuff, and I think it paid off for them, you know, maybe a couple of years after that point. It was a great story, man. No, and and um, and it really uh, again. Sometimes I think people who have trouble figuring out writing Superman, it's like you know, how do you how do you you know where are the flaws? Where are the where are the things that can hurt him? And it is right. always internal. And and uh, Greg Rucka always says, you know, you you can break Superman's heart. Because he is such a compassionate yeah. person, and uh, yeah. no, you guys found a, a great way to break him down and, and really doubt himself. Because I think, especially in Smallville and even in the Snyder films, um, they almost try to make Superman into Spider-Man, where he is more embarrassed by his powers rather than embrace the lessons of the Kents. Of no, we help people, right. Clark. That's what the Kents do. Right. And and right, I think right. you know that's that's the strength of that's the man part of Superman. I mean, it's obvious yeah. to those of us who who think of Superman yeah. that way. So yeah, you know, I, I, well, I think go on, yeah, please. It, it, I was say that speaks also though to the the decades between the uh, you know nineteen seventy eight Superman and the uh, you know Man of Steel. Even though I liked I've liked the Zack Snyder, I like the two Superman, Superman, Batman, Man of Steel. I really really enjoyed them. Really, go on, yeah, and please. I would have taken I would have taken like just a, a few little things, and I think I could have appeased the fans who found certain stuff abhorrent. <laughs> you know, um, because both ultimately the first story is an origin story. Agreed. You know, it's it's his first time in costume. It's his first time really doing Superman stuff mm-hmm. in public. And I would argue with people after Man of Steel, I said, here's the thing. He killed Zod because Zod put him in the position of, I'm not giving up. Right. And if there was one brief moment at the end of that battle after he kills him, and this is me as, because I, when I was a kid, I wanted to make movies. <laughs> Everybody sure. does. Um I would have I would have just taken that one scene right after he kills him, and I would pull back, pull back, back, back like a really distant shot to where you see just two little the, him and the figure of Zod surrounded by all of this destruction of Metropolis, and would have just had him, oh my God, you know, just some kind of sense of what have I done? Yeah, I was protecting, but what what happened is you know just something to reflect on that I was part of this. 
you know. Understood. Yeah. And I think it would have it would have appeased people who, you know, felt like it went right from him killing Zod to suddenly the jokey scene with the military guys and the eye in the sky or whatever the satellite yes. that he throws at their feet. It felt like that was that could have still worked, but maybe you just need that one moment of reflection of, holy crap, what did I do? You know? I do, and because people go on. No, I was going to say. I mean, I think that would have been that would have been a natural reaction, and it seemed like the type of scene that should have been in there, at least at the, on the DVD I, or Blu-ray. It should have been a cut scene at the very least to have him reflect on this, because the reason we never did, we always tried to steer clear of big fight stories, is because every time in a big Marvel fight story, it was an abandoned warehouse or an abandoned district <laughs> or whatever, and. It would just, you know, someone would destroy tons of buildings, but you never had a sense of casual. Right, no collab- collateral damage. Doomsday, right, yeah. The whole point of doing Doomsday was like, okay, Dan Jurgens wanted to do a big fight issue because that's what Marvel did, and we were always trying to get people to buy the book, and we we just had a hard time selling it to, like I said, to comic stores. So Doomsday was okay. If nobody in the room wanted to do the big fight story. That's what Marvel does. That's not what we're doing on Superman. We're doing the character stories, blah, blah, blah. So after his idea initially was dismissed and nobody came up with anything really better or substantial, I revisited. I said, hey, let's go back to Dan's thing. If we did this thing and we did a big destructive fight, we'll do it our way. And we wound up crafting pretty much that into you got to see people homeless. you got to see have to accept the fact that there's casualties. All these things are important because that's what happens. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's no war without people dying and being displaced and, and that's right. And all, all that. So that was important. And that became the focus. And that became then when we decided he's going to die, that became the focus of, you know, funeral for a friend and world without Krypton. It was like, like we were doing a little bit of a, you know, uh, here's what the comic stores think of Superman. They don't appreciate him. And once he's gone, it's like, oh, man, that's a big hole in my life. Yeah. This guy did this and he did that. Kind of like what happens when most people die. You know, people reflect and it's all stuff that maybe should have been said when they were alive. directly to the person yeah. before they passed away. Absolutely. Oh, my God. But, you guys uh, put us through hell. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> that was so great. It really was. And also the buildup to that. Uh, that uh, that issue, if it was Superman seventy five or six, when the final fight between him and Doomsday, mm-hmm. and you know you would slowly yeah. reduce the panels, and you know we had uh, four right, panels right. to three, two, and then the final issue right. just splash page after splash page. Oh my God, it was right, it was epic, right. absolutely. And then, like you said, funeral yeah. for a friend, it really did. It lingered, and good lord. And then also to cancel the book with Jonathan having his heart episode. And it's like, wait a minute, what right. are you doing, man? Right. That was great. Like, no, right. you guys played us well. <laughs> well, once we had that point, I mean, it was, we had, we had come up with the idea the death of Superman idea, and we were all working towards that. And once it started getting much more, um, acclaim, I mean, before it even came out, we started getting all this publicity so and became a huge, huge thing, building, building, building. Mike Carlin said, okay, we're going to have another meeting, another story conference, and we're going to try to unlock this thing and make it... Because at that point, it went from being just a Superman story that we'd hoped would get comic stores to buy it to being like a, a bit of a phenomenon before it even came out. 
so we went in, sat in a meeting and worked out and made it much better and much more involved because we knew it needed to be more involved. Cool. You know, it wasn't going to be like we discover Clark in the, in the rubble alive, you know, a month later or whatever. I mean, we had those ideas initially, but it was like the idea became so big. And I, I also argued for the, um, here's the way comics were sold and they're still sold this way is that, uh, you give a description of the content of the book and they usually show the cover in an order form for previews, yes. which is a comic distributor. I said, here's your one chance where people won't know what Superman will look like when he comes back. So you got to do blackouts or something. And then Carlin came up with, okay, we'll do top secret and it'll just be blank, <laughs> you know, for the issues afterwards. Yeah. Because... I had, and again, I, I know I can lay claim to that idea because when I first got on Superman, um, I knew I wasn't doing the Man of Steel thing with Byrne, the relaunch actual, the miniseries. That was going to be his thing. And at the time he was doing that, I was finishing up on penciling a couple issues of Fantastic Four while I was waiting to start on Superman. So I filled in for him when he left Marvel. I did like three issues of Fantastic Four while I was waiting for Superman to start up. And the editor on Man of Steel was Andy Helfer, and Andy was sending me pencils, photocopies of pencils of Burns' Man of Steel issue so I could kind of get up to speed or see what was going on. And the one thing that cracked me up was, I think there's a, he missed, either didn't send me a page or, or something, but the way I read the, the photocopies, it looked like, the issue, the first issue ended without Superman because it was like, here's what he's going to be. And then I didn't, maybe I didn't get the last page, the splash page where he flies up or whatever out at the reader. I just, it just ended. The last page I saw was maybe he was with Ma Kent and she was trying to figure it out. And I thought at the time, I thought, wow, that's kind of brilliant to actually end your first issue without showing Superman in costume because it's the first time that at that time that was the first time in almost 50 years where you didn't know what Superman would be or what he'd look like. So you know what I'm saying? Yes. It was it was going to be the ground floor thing. So then when I realized later, it was like, oh no, we forgot to send you the last page. It was like, oh, oh, that's kind of a missed opportunity then. <laughs> so I revisited that. I thought of that again when we were when, after the death. I thought, well, we knew we were always going to bring him back, but this is the first time that we can do this and have people not know he could show up as a guy in a black costume. He could show up however. And then that led to, well, we're going to do multiple Superman, you know, Superman. Yes, the reign of and the I Superman. Thought, wow, yes. that's, yeah, yeah. So that's that was kind of cool. But it really kind of came out of this idea that, uh, you know, the audience, after having that book canceled, they would not know what 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 the status quo would be. And we would use that as a marketing lever, you know. Because that's the only time you can do that with a, a known property. Sure. Did you, did, were you, um, you know, the four different supermen, how involved were you in terms of, you know, did, was one of those your specific idea or? No, no, no. I, had, uh, I knew I was, I knew Carl Kiesel was taken over, um, but I was part of the meeting when we first, um, when we re reconnoitered, we, re we, we got together to do the return. Um, my, as I recall, my daughter had just been born. She was about a month old. And I went to the, they had a meeting, the, like a conference center in White, White Plains, New York, or somewhere in Westchester, the White Plains. I went to this, and 
worked for the first day on how we're bringing them back, and I had all my ideas, and you know the the whole story of kind of in the uh, you know the on the edges of heaven and hell kind of thing, um, which also plays off of Clark being raised a God-fearing yes. Midwesterner. Yes. Without without being denominational, it was like it was it, it felt like that would be a kind of good way to also make Pa Kent heroic, because Pa Kent basically forces himself into that position to kind of try to find Clark. Yes, it's amazing. You know? Great story. Absolutely. So, so the part of the four, the four characters had become part of that because each char- each of the writers came to the meeting with their pitch for what Superman would be. And Carlin heard all the pitches. I heard all the pitches too. I mean, I was, again, and, and it, it very quickly it became like, well, what if it's all of them and we don't know? I love mystery stuff. I love that. Again, Agreed. it just felt like you know, I don't know that I would say I was, you know, integral to anything that happened after that point. But we did. I mean, a lot of the big strokes were discussed, and then I left, went back to my wife and daughter, you know, <laughs> and then they 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 continued the next day to work out the at least the the next part of it where the four characters get intro, you know, not get introduced, but where the four characters, you know, go in and ultimately end up with the. Uh, uh, with Mongol and yes. uh, destroying Coast, Coast City, City. yes, so, Green Lantern's Town, yeah. yeah. So as a reader, that was really thrilling to read that whole, you know, Reign of the Superman story. I was, I was, just again, just from that point of of being a reader, it was really thrilling. It was like, wow, these guys really brought it. It was, it was a, a really good, you know, a good uh, way to relaunch the character. Agreed. Did you ever but, hear uh, the audio uh, adaptation? Of Doomsday and Beyond, oh, yeah. I, I really thought, yeah, was, especially it, as you mentioned the uh, Pa Kent and and Superman's Kryptonian uh, mm-hmm. funeral and everything. I I always uh, they really handled that well, and it was beautiful in the comic. But also, yeah, yeah. So so you had you had stopped um, before the reign of the Superman. You you had left the book for a while. No, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd always stupidly, I guess. <laughs> I, I said I told Carl and I said I'm I'm ready to move on because I was I was working on um, uh, I had been doing pages for the Power of Shazam graphic yes, novel of course. and they were full co- full color and it was going really slowly and I had been writing the Super Adventures of Superman but I wasn't drawing it for the previous maybe I'd say maybe I don't know at least a year maybe a little more and with my daughter being born I was thinking you know I want to cut back on my workload. I had all these reasons, and it felt like Adventures 500 was a good point to step off, knowing that Carl Kiesel was was taken over on my on Adventures, yes. because yeah. Carl and I had known each other for years and years, and I knew he had great ideas and stuff. So I just I took it as an opportunity to, to step off, but that was of course before we were selling like multiple millions of copies, and I kind of <laughs> I will I would be I would be stupid to to lie about it that I didn't think, gee. hmm. What am I walking away from? You know, <laughs> but uh, but I did okay because I did Wildstar um, pretty much immediately after that, and uh, you know I was ready. I was ready. I was. Ne- I never felt like I was done with Superman. I still always kept my file of ideas. You know, I'd read read multiple newspapers, and I would always put down little ideas, springboards, or clip articles that I thought would be. And I always maintained that that file, and I always kind of thought I would come back to it. But uh, but I, it never really happened. I mean, I, I I helped out Carl Kiesel a little bit when he was doing another project. I dialogued 
Superman for maybe a, I don't know if it was a year, but it was something like that back in, in the, while I was doing Shazam in, the, okay. in maybe 96, 7. I think 97 and 98 maybe. And then uh, when a, a new editor took over, I was going to go back on adventures as an artist and writer because Carl was ready to leave and he thought it was just kind of fun to pass the book back to me. And uh, the editor that I was working with at the time was like, you know, this sounds great. I'll get the contracts going. And then within the space of maybe a week or two weeks of him, he was gone. Basically, they replaced him as, with a different editor. And then the different editor pretty much had his own ideas and fired everybody. Jeez. So that was the end of my uh, Superman uh, for a long time, especially for up until, I think, you know, doing Action 1000. I, I, I always felt bad about it, you know, but you don't want to work for somebody who wants to fire you bad enough to do it when, when his boss was on vacation, which is what ultimately happened. Well, that guy got his, and uh, we're all pretty happy about that as fans. <laughs> and and uh, I think everyone I, can I know. figure out which Superman editor who was of recent, uh, <laughs> you know, ill repute uh, got right. his. So, yeah, screw right. that guy. Well, That's I was, okay. I, I did say that. I said it's like, you know, um, it was for something else, but, you know, karma karma does come around, Damn and that's, that's something. But it's unfortunate that he, I guess, I mean, this guy thrived, and, you know, for better or worse, he he thrived for 20 years after yes. that, you know? Yes, So No, I understand, and yeah, I, uh, yeah, well, again, he got his. And I even worked with him. I mean, I had to basically, hat in hand, I had to, I had to work with him. Ish. After that point, and um, you know, what do you do? You know, you just. Yeah. I, I said this. Holding a grudge was hurting me more than it was hurting him. Clearly, so I, I basically said, in the, if I want to work at DC, I got to do something. I got to. I have to put this aside. So. No, I understand, man. And, and again, uh, those of us who've worked in the corporate world, yeah, there there are jerks that you have to work for sometimes, and and try to make <laughs> the best of it. Well, let's move to a positive thing because also I've kept you long, and I want just very quickly I want to acknowledge that your Shazam stuff was fantastic. I loved it, and uh, oh, absolutely, I you know I'll, I will let you go because I mean, good lord, we've almost been talking for an hour and a half. I wanted to mention though, you're going to be a Terrificon at Mohegan yeah. Sun. And I will be there uh -huh. as well. I don't know if I'm, I'm, oh, cool. I'm moderating one of your panels or not, but regardless, I'm looking forward to seeing oh, cool. you there and also uh, letting the fans know that you will be there in August. Or do you have any other yeah. convention plans? No, not be not before then. I, I'll probably go to Baltimore Comic Con because nice. I did that last year and that was a lot of fun. Um, but I, other than that, I, I just did Heroes Con in, in North Carolina, and that was uh, it's a big show. Yes, and it's. I don't know if you've ever been to Heroes, but Heroes has got a real good fan vibe. It doesn't feel like a media Agreed. show, which Agreed. is fun. And uh, Baltimore, same thing. Yes. And also Terrificon, I think Terrificon is the smallest of those. But it, the first year I did, when Mitch finally, the, Mitch Halleck, had, who runs Terrificon, yeah. had done a big show in Bridgeport. Um, and it was the first time i had done all three days of a comic show in a long time so i was like at the first day i said wow the vibe in the room is just good it's comic fans yeah and you could tell from so the guests was, and everything it, that that's the vibe yeah. you're going for go on please yeah no i was gonna say just it, it that's the type of show that we used to go to before yes. yeah. it became oh look we can see the star of captain america or whatever i mean there's a valid point to of that course. um but when you do a show like that people generally your audience is split 
so you have a, a standard number of people who are there to see the stars, and they're in a different section, and the people who are there to see the comic creators are in a different a different group and a different section, yep. and there's there's not a lot of overlap, and there's physical reasons for that because if you're going if you're paying big bucks for a photo op with uh, movie stars, you're going to be waiting in line like half of your day. Yes, you know what I mean. I do. <laughs> you could, they just they just put you in lines to do this, and then you move to another line to do that. And if you have multiple photo things, you're never ever going to get on the convention floor and buy anything. You know what I mean? Great. So it's it's uh, it's fun to be at a show where people are like looking to, you know, get their books signed and and uh, and interact. And I always when I when I do these shows, it's performance for me. Sure. You know, I'm not putting on an act or anything, but I do the whole. Po- I work at home. You know, sure. when I'm out. I'll talk to the people I'm signing or drawing a sketch for because it's interesting to me. These are people I would normally meet. You know, what do you do for a living? I mean, if people laugh at it in a way. Some of my friends go, you know, you could do more sketches if you did less talking. And I said, <laughs> the point of this, seriously, the point of it is, I know that I'm not going to be, we're not going to be best friends, but I, I always want to, how else are you going to find out what, what people's lives are like outside of your own little circle, you know? Not, so. Yep. Uh, I'm always intrigued by people, you know, like, because you can look at somebody and say, okay, what does this guy look like? If I were stereotyping his job, what would it be? And most times you're wrong. <laughs> and I don't know, if, I, I don't think it's just me. I think it's just easy to uh, to visually try to find a cue for someone. Like, I mean, uh, I, I find it interesting to find out what people do, you know. Understood. Like, how can you afford to come here and spend this much on, <laughs> on sketches and I stuff? Understand. <laughs> That's a good point. You know what I mean? I, I mean, that's a valid thing. It's like if you're working at Starbucks, chances are you're not going to have that extra money to spend on a on a photo op with movie stars for five hundred bucks. You I know? do. I mean, yes. that that's, that makes me that's in, that interests me just because again, you lose you do lose touch when you're working at home. You know, you just don't have that same experience of being even even in an office where you have a a group of people that you might interact with and find out their woes or whatever you know well and also like you said there is this divide of the people that go to meet the stars the movie stars and the tv stars Mm -hmm. and and the comic community where you know and again maybe because we're older or something but i just think it is a more enriching experience getting to meet uh you people that have been writing and drawing these characters and you've got all these stories and you know, yeah. we we know the names. We we learn a little bit from the letters pages in in previous years. But it really the, that is the great thing about the comics community that everyone is approachable, and we get you know you get our stories, but we get your stories as well. And right. just like the the you know time you've just spent with me right now talking about some of these behind the scenes scenes uh, stories that inspired what you guys put on the page. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that's that's great, and uh, and. Uh, I would rather spend, you know, hours at a convention in Artist Alley than waiting three hours for, right. uh, you know, if you're lucky, a two-minute experience of standing next right. to Chris Evans. And I think two minutes is probably generous, <laughs> you know, because I know they well, whip them in and out of there. My favorite story about yeah. that is my buddy went to uh, get a photograph for his for her boyfriend of uh, him mm. and William Shatner, and um, the, his eyes were closed in the photo. And so they go back to the people doing the photos and like, hey, we'll wait at the end of the line. Can we redo the photo? They're like, oh no, 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 we'll fix it. And they literally went in Photoshop and put dots on his closed eyes, oh, so he looks like hilarious. olive oil in, in like a Max Fleischer Popeye funny. thing. 
And yeah, what was supposed to be this great keepsake for her boyfriend is like this sad, you know, yeah, we spent 300 bucks on William Shatner and yeah, his, our eyes are closed and we look stupid. So, well, I did the. I went to the Ace Comic Con show. It was in on Long Island. That's and for uh, listeners, that's the uh, the guys who used to run Wizard Magazine, Garib Sheamus's yep. uh, show. So, yeah, tell me about that yeah. show, please. And they they did a they did a Justice League signing event where they had pretty much everybody except Ben Affleck. Wow, um, signing as far as the group of Justice League characters. Uh-huh. I went to the show and I went with. Mitch from Comic Con because he was driving. We went up for one oh, day, funny. and uh, I had drawn uh, Henry Cavill as Superman as a gift because I was told that I could give it to him. I wasn't looking for a photo thing. I just thought I'd be able to hand it to him. Say, here's a drawing from you know Superman artist drawing you as Superman. I also did one of Gal. Is it Gal Gadot? Yeah, Gadot? Think, yeah. I don't let's know. call her Gal Gadot. We know what you're talking about. Wonder Woman, of course. <laughs> um, I did one of her as well, and I just thought. They're at the show. There must be some way to 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 just go hand it to sure. them. And we got to the show and found out, oh, that that's not going to happen. Jesus. So I, Mitch, then got mad because we had he felt we had like some agreement that we were going to get to do this. So he went into uh, into his mode that uh, he started using all the people that he knew from other shows that where he'd done shows. Right. He saw he recognized people who did the photography, and then he recognized the guys the the guards were, you know. Uh, some of a couple of them were policemen that he knew who did this do this crowd control sure. at other conventions. Sure. So we kind of talked our way up to getting uh, to meet with Henry Cavill, and then leveraged that somehow to get Gal. And then while we were standing in line with waiting to get to get uh, the Wonder Woman, you know, that picture moment, moment right. we saw Garib Sheamus and and walking by, and Garib came up to me and said, "Jerry, thank you for coming to the show for, for the day. Um, really appreciate it." And he's like, well, is there any chance that the Justice League signing's right next? Is there any chance we can get in there? He goes, sure. So he just waved us over to, to stand Good. in the special area, and we wound up getting the group shot. And trust me, the, the experience, everybody was super nice. I'm sure. I, the, the, the actors were very, very gracious, very, very nice. But it's virtually a 10-second interaction, interaction. There you go. It's you very go. quick. I hear you, man. I mean, you, I you can say something to them. And as opposed to the William Shatner thing, there I've I've seen all the pictures posted after that event posted on Twitter and on Facebook, and there's not a bad I did not see a bad picture of any of the actors. That's excellent. <laughs> so, well, that's good. There's an a, there's definitely a, a a level of professionalism to be on like that because each one of them smile is perfect, the eyes and. You know, the rest of us, we we don't have that training. So sure. you know, I'm looking at the picture, and it's like, uh, I guess I should have extended my neck a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you, man. That's but, awesome. Uh, but it was fun, and it was. I've never done that before, and I think the only reason I wouldn't have done it if Mitch hadn't been there, because I would have just accepted it and said, okay, I guess that's the way things go. And I would have just gone back to my table and signed and, and sketched. But he was like, no, no, this is we're going to make a point of this because they said that we could do this, and now we're not going to. It was just funny, so I went along with it. I, I need more. I think I need more, uh, more friends like Mitch, <laughs> assertive <laughs> people. He reminds me a little bit of Mike Carlin because Mike Carlin was also pretty. Uh, he was a, a very is a very feisty guy, and uh, not from the Midwest. And I think the key <laughs> there is, I'm. You know what I, I mean? Know I'm just I'm I'm a little self-effacing. Yeah. You know self-effacing, and it just well, whatever. You know, there's that some Midwest thing where you you know. You just kind of put up with it, and 
You know, do I deserve that? <laughs> do I deserve a picture with them? Nah, it's not that big a deal. Right. So, no, that, but no, I'm but, glad. Uh, I'm glad Mitch had the tenacity to make that happen. And also, as you just yeah. said, and I, and I agree with you, it's never the actors. The actors are very yeah. happy, to, and they understand that, like, you know, yeah. it's the fans that make them what they are. Yeah. But no, it's yeah. it's the layers of security, and again, the way this is set up. Yeah. And also, I do understand, but it's, it's it, it, it does... It, it grates on me as well, and it kind of, and I'm gl- like yeah, I said, yeah. I'm glad Mitch had the tenacity to help yeah. you get and, and uh, you guys up there and make it happen. Well, it's all about math too, though. Yes. That's the thing that a lot of people don't get is if they're paying someone three hundred thousand dollars, literally, they're paying them. They're really, yes. those actors all got big oh, bucks, yeah. and um, I think the group shot that we got for free because you know I'm somebody that Garib knew. <laughs> <laughs> The group shot is a thousand dollar. I think it was a thousand dollar buy-in. So I mean, these packages—if you want the whole thing—was expensive stuff. But at the same time, you know, to pay seven, six or seven actors big bucks, they have to—they have to do you know a certain number of them a minute. Really, sure. I mean, it comes down to that, and that—that that, uh, it does. It's not like you're going to show up and pay money and become someone's best friend. You're in and out. You walk away. Walk over to a place where they hand you a picture. So, um, and I, I think in their, you know, if it's if it's smoothly run, uh, a well-run machine like that, they're going to try to do everything they can to not get those bad pictures. You know Agreed. what I mean? So, I mean, the the Shatner experience was probably just somebody who screwed up or who wasn't prepared well enough for something because they would have whoever standing with us. You could see the people next to the cameraman. They would give it a, 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 a yes or no. So if there was something, they saw it when that they'd snap sh- happened. They shoot another picture. If someone, yeah, they would immediately do a second. Well, that's good because uh, well, and again, this was yeah. this was like ten or twelve years ago. So I'm sure in yeah. that time, the people that run yeah, these things have figured a, it out. It's become a smooth run business. Definitely, Absolutely, definitely. But yeah, you know, it, well, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say now. I mean, the, the changes in in the in that time frame too is, are different in that in the. Even back in the like San Diego Con, when I would go in the '80s and early '90s, you would see celebrities walking around, and you could just stop them and get a picture sure. with them. But you were, you know, you were holding the camera. That's the only way you had a guarantee to get a picture. You're holding. I always carried my camera with me at the at these shows. I put it on a little fanny pouch on the side of my belt, <laughs> and uh, I always had it handy. So you know, that's how you 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 would get. There was no. We're going to take a picture, and it's going to cost you forty dollars. Type I of thing. Understand. So the, the, a lot of that business has, and and the business of comic cons has changed a lot in in those Agreed. years. You know the, um, the bigger that you know, bigger crowds at some of these shows, the more uh, the more opportunity that people see too. So well, it's all well. it's all business, and then a lot of it, most of it doesn't you know feed back into comic readership, which is that's the one regret. It doesn't, uh, I don't think, I think people feel like, I watched the Avengers, I did my duty, I don't need to read right. Avengers comic. Right, You know? No, I understand, and, and yeah, it's it's an interesting time, and it's, it, again, another double-edged sword. Um, and yet, so where, where, do you, where do you shop in Chicago? Oh, I, I, well, I, I live right by, I, I, I go to a couple shops, but I live by Chicago Comics, uh, okay. right there at uh, Clark and Belmont, not too far from Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. For people listening who may not know the geography, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's a great store. And um, you know, uh, Challengers is a great newer store that uh, is in uh, Wicker Park and uh, right off uh, 
one of the L train uh, stops, the blue line, uh, right at, uh, right. Um, oh, God, now I'm blanking what stop, but it doesn't matter. But they're a great, that's a great yeah. store. My friends, Art and Franco, who work with DC yep. occasionally on Tiny Titans oh, yeah. and stuff. Yes, oh, yeah, right. comics. I go to uh, their Chicago store in Skokie, and I know you've been to you their Harrison Graham, store. Graham Cracker. Yeah, Graham Graham Crackers used to be, it still is. I lived, I worked downtown at uh, the CBS uh, news station and uh, walking distance from uh, Graham Crackers downtown. So yeah, there's a lot of great stores. Um, That's the life, that's the lifeblood, you know? I mean, that's, it's good that, that Chicago's got a thriving enough. Oh um, yeah. uh, I mean, that's, that's, again, that, that really is what keeps comics alive is having that because people don't necessarily have to travel super far to find a store agreed that's that's important and and having that competition i think brings everybody up i agree with that as well everybody's level no it's uh, yeah we're very we're very fortunate in chicago and the surrounding suburbs to have such an active uh store community and uh no it's 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 a huge help and i'm i'm looking forward to seeing you terrific i'll 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 let us wrap up man because like i said i don't want to take too much of your time give you at least part of your what's left of the late afternoon back to you but i hope you'll come back as long as i have time to get pizza on friday there you go all right good deal but yeah please come back because man we haven't talked about shazam there's still a ton more to talk about superman hell even more to talk about uh regarding uh the all-star squadron infinity and uh, the justice society as well but uh Batman movie comic. The Batman movie comic, I have, indeed. I have, I have stories about that too. Oh man! All right, we're well, going to see the set. Yeah, all right, Jerry. Then we're gonna. Yeah, I, I hope we'll. Uh, well, I'll definitely look you up at uh, Terrificon and Mohegan Sun. Okay. But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's try and and maybe uh, you know yeah either later this year or as we get closer to the Shazam movie. You know that's a good excuse cool. to to have another conversation with you. But thanks for talking today. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, John. How about it? Great conversation with Jerry Ordway on today's Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed it. It was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are great books waiting for you at InStock Trades. How about things like uh, th- that also uh, include the work of Jerry Ordway? Thor versus Thanos. Great Dan Jurgen stuff. Uh, it is 42% off, $14.49. I wonder how much of that story made it into the Thanos-Thor battle in Infinity War. There's Captain America by Dan Jurgens. That features the art of uh, Andy Kubert and Jerry Ordway. Trade Paperback Volume 1, 42% off, $17.39. Jerry also worked on Infinite Crisis along with uh, George Perez and Yvonne Hayes, Andy Lanning, and others. But uh, the Trade Paperback that collects the miniseries is uh, 45% off, $8.24. Or there's even uh, Justice Society of America Volume 3, Thy Kingdom Come, uh, you can get uh, parts one and two, uh, 50% off. It's just $9.99. Uh, also, Red Menace. There's another book that, uh, again, I had the writers on years ago, and that was uh, uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo, the guys behind the original 90s Flash TV series. They wrote the Rocketeer movie, and uh, this was a great uh, creation that they did with uh, a McCarthy-era thought in mind of taking a look at the superhero uh, during the McCarthy era. Red Menace, trade paperback, it's 45% off, $9.89 from InStockTrades.com. Don't forget, if your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping from our friends at InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed June. July is coming. And uh, great stuff already on the way. Uh, Don McGregor, the one of the great creators behind Black Panther, is uh, going to join us on a panel discussion that he had with Ed Cato, the Captain Action uh, man behind Captain Action these days. 
but also uh, Jason Inman rejoins us to talk about Jupiter Jet. The new trade is out for uh, that. And we talk about the summer movies so far and some more things that are happening in streaming television that uh, piques our interest. And a whole lot more. There's a ton already in the bag at uh, WordBalloon.com waiting to release uh, on the next few days for the Word Balloon podcast. So if uh, I don't hear from you before the 4th, have a great holiday week. And uh, you'll hear from me definitely the week of the 4th, probably on Wednesday. But uh, giving you some more great uh, conversations to listen to throughout the holiday week and the beginning of July. So until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.